there's always been a backlash. And so you have to, you have to expect it and you have to be ready for it. Unfortunately, and it's sad, right? We want to believe we live in this world where it's like, oh, people are asserting themselves to get more rights. Like, of course we want that. But that's just not the case. <laughs> that's Carmela Sparrow, and she's talking about her school district, Carmel Clay. Carmel Clay School District is just north of Indianapolis in Indiana. It's one of the many places where national right-wing extremist groups have stoked and exploited the fears of an older white community. They spread lies and disinformation about teachers and schools and have disrupted school meetings with screaming and threats of violence. And in 2022, extremist organizations poured money into electing three members of the school board. But in Carmel Clay, the community pushed back against the backlash and the disinformation and defeated two of the three candidates supported by extremist organizations, losing the third race by very few votes. Many folks around the country want to know how they did it. And that's the subject of this podcast. Welcome to Democracy in Education. This episode is Standing Up to Extremism in Carmel Clay, Indiana. I am Karen Chenoweth, and this is the second in what I hope will be a series of podcasts about communities that are standing up to extremism and electing good governance pro-public education school board members. I'm happy to say that such communities can be found all over the country, but their victories are not automatic. Carmel Clay is an example. An awful lot of people work to sound the alarm for their neighbors. We're going to hear from a few of them. And we're going to meander around a bit so that you can understand some of the history and some of the context for what went on in Carmel. It has its own particular set of circumstances, but I think you'll see some parallels with many other communities in America. We'll start with someone who can give us a little history. For a very long time, Carmel has had a terrible reputation in terms of race. My name is Diane Hanna. And I am a mom of three with uh, one kid, uh, a first grader in the Carmel Clay School System. And we moved to Carmel in February of 2021 uh, from New Jersey. This is where my husband's family, this, this area is where my husband's family is from. And uh, during the pandemic, we had babies that we needed to take care of. And we came back here for the family support. In my day job, I'm a medievalist historian of Christianity. Um, I work under my maiden name, uh, which is Diane Brachtman. I work at Rutgers University. I am from New York originally, and then I came to Indiana University uh, for my master's and PhD. So I got my doctorate from Indiana University, which is where I met my husband. That's the Indiana connection for me. Yeah, a lot of my friends were Carmel people, and they told me stories about Carmel. They hated the exclusivity. They hated the whiteness. They hated the sort of mentality of exclusion that they felt Carmel had. and. Then the other sort of impression that you would get of Carmel is strident racism. So, you know, if somebody at Bloomington were to just, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm white. So, you know, if they would say something to me that was explicitly anti-Black racist or anti-Asian racist, nine times out of ten, you could bet they were from Carmel. The history she's talking about goes back a long way before she was a college student in Bloomington. For example... In the 1920s, Indiana was the center of the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. More than a 
quarter million Indiana residents joined the anti-Black, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant clan, including the governor and a large section of the state legislature. Hamilton County, where Carmel is, was a Klan stronghold within Indiana. Skipping ahead to the 1970s, the Carmel Clay School District successfully fought against being part of a desegregation plan with next-door Indianapolis, which meant that until very recently, Carmel Clay Schools served an overwhelmingly white student population. When we chose to move back to Indiana, Carmel was on my veto list. We were never, despite the fact that Tom's grandparents had lived here, that his father had grown up here or um, spent time here, that um, he had a whole bunch of family in Carmel. It was on our veto list because I, we were moving from New Jersey, from a place that was very diverse culturally, ethnically, racially, politically, religiously, everything. Um, and I did not want my kid growing up in a place where he would learn all of this racism that he would then have to unlearn. But they had trouble finding a big enough house. Our realtor said, hey, you know, they understand their reputation and they want to change it. And this was in, in 2021. And our realtor said, yeah, the school district's just hired a DEI coordinator. So I went and I looked, I looked it up. I saw that it was all true. I saw that like Carmel was making real big strides towards um, actually embracing diversity, equity and inclusion. And so we, we opened up our, our home search to include Carmel, and we found a place that we loved. Yeah, so we found out that Carmel had been, had, not only had it been committed to diversity and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the schools, but also that the city in the 20 years, you know, or in, in the, I guess the decade since I had left, but in the 20 years since I had first encountered Carmel, we found out that Carmel had, had gotten more diverse. According to the 2020 U.S. Census, Carmel has about 100,000 people, 80% of whom are white, about 11% are considered Asian, about 4% are Hispanic, and 3% African American. We came here to be part of the Carmel that we saw growing in front of us that was really actively committed to diversity and to this expansive idea of humanity. So before we go on, there's a story behind the hiring of the diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator who attracted Diane Hanna and her family. That story has to do with the person we heard at the very beginning of the episode talking about backlash. My name is Dr. Carmela Sparrow, and I am an educator. I've been an educator for 12 years. Um, and I'm also a political activist, and I run an organization called Support CCS. That's Support Carmel Clay Schools. Carmela Sparrow, who just earned her doctorate from Vanderbilt University in Educational Leadership, moved to Carmel because she wanted to send her twin boys to well-resourced schools. And Carmel Clay Schools are very well-resourced. And its students are considered among the highest achieving in the state. But she's African-American, and she says she worried that her sons might encounter some racism. And when she talked to the principal of her kindergarten children's school, she seemed unprepared to address the issue. She said that when she spoke one-on-one -on -one with teachers and administrators, they would acknowledge there was a problem, but they were unsure and unequipped with the knowledge of what to do about it. 
so she and other concerned citizens of Carmel organized and videotaped hours of testimony from students, alumni, and parents of students and alumni attesting to the racist incidents and racist assumptions they had experienced within the schools. Most were African American, but some were Asian and Hispanic. This brought the issue of racism to the foreground. The relatively new superintendent pledged to do something about the fact that so many people of color felt uncomfortable and unsafe in the schools. He hired a diversity, equity, and inclusion director. And Carmela Sparrow says she's pleased with the progress the school system has made in the years since. I feel like it's changing. I feel like there are structures in place that are making changes. So I feel a bit more comfortable. I actually just went to their middle school principal and had to sit down with him Tuesday, you know, to be prevent, to be proactive. Um, and also to ask him, like, hey, what is your plan for students who look like my kids in your school? Like, what are we doing? And he was able to give me some messaging. He was able to tell me some of the things that our DEI chief has been doing, some structures they now have in place, some books they've been reading as a staff, all of these things that did not exist in any way beforehand. And that makes me feel better. Now, is it to the point where for sure we're going to stay here? I don't know. We're taking it year by year. I'm letting my kids dictate that. Like their mental health is top of mind for me. And so if they are like, hey, I don't feel safe here. Hey, this thing is happening to me. I'm being bullied, whatever. And it's not resolved, then I will move them. But um, for now, they're having a good experience. And I feel good about the direction that we're going. But the progress that Carmela Sparrow has experienced has not come without a cost. There hasn't been a time in American history where Black people especially, where people of color, have asserted themselves for rights, for space, and there wasn't a backlash. Here's Diane Hanna again. One of the first things we start seeing, you know, after we've gotten ourselves a little bit settled, is this group called Unify Carmel. And... They are anti-CRT. By this time, you probably know what CRT is, critical race theory. To learn more about it, see the one-page brief on the topic at www.assistdemocracy.org. The short story is that extremists have turned the name of an academic legal theory into a catch-all phrase used to characterize a whole host of things they don't like, including any acknowledgement that racism has not been eradicated from America's legal and political structures. They're picking up all these national talking points. They're claiming that our schools are failing. They're railing against the DEI coordinator who, you know, was the reason that we moved here. (laughs) Um, And talking about how uh, we needed to restrict our discussions of history so that we don't make white kids feel bad. And so that was the discourse. And you had people screaming at school board uh, meetings. And at one point, you know, somebody brought a gun to a meeting and it fell out of his pocket. You know, it's I mean, when I say screaming at meetings, they were literally shouting. They were shouting over the board such that the board could not complete their couldn't complete their duties. So most of these people, um, there was a fair chunk of them who were not even Carmel residents, uh, and they were upfront about this. You know, there were people from the surrounding towns who would come in to these meetings, uh, and very few of them were actually had kids. I think only one person had kids in the Carmel Clay schools, and she had just moved there, too. 
Yeah, most of the people in Unify Carmel did not have children in the school. Some of them didn't have children at all. And uh, the main spokespeople did not have children in the schools. Carmela Sparrow, who had organized the videotaped testimony in order to advocate for hiring the diversity, equity, and inclusion director, found herself called upon to do something. When the school board issues started to pop up, people reached out to us and like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? And we were able to quickly organize the community and get about 300 people to the school board. Yeah, with signs and everything. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. And we had students of all colors and all backgrounds, you know, describing the experience they themselves went through or the experience they saw them fr- their friends go through. Um, it was very powerful. It was a very powerful night. And so I think that was part of the reason why we didn't have a quick turnover because the school board, the school knew they had a, a big, like a big mass of people who supported what they were doing, who were behind what they were doing. And we were very active and very vocal. We also were emailing super, the superintendent and school board members, like, keep up the good fight, keep up doing this work. We really appreciate it. Our students need it. Our students are feeling the impact of what you're doing. Like, we were very active in that sense. Diane Hanna says, that one of the things that people screaming at the school board were able to draw on is the fact that diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings are sometimes terrible. People who oppose DEI, frequently they oppose it because they've experienced bad DEI. So they've experienced DEI where, um, you know, it, there's there's tokenization of different people, where people are uh, asked to feel bad and asked to feel guilty. And I have been privileged to be in spaces, um, university spaces, IU and DePaul University and Rutgers University, where they really have, the DEI efforts have been transformational, they have been well supported. And one of the things you realize in those spaces is that guilt doesn't help anyone. There's no point in feeling guilty about what your ancestors did or any white privilege you might have or any other types of privilege you might have. It's just something that you need to acknowledge if you're going to understand where we are as a society today. And if you are going to understand the way that the world works in a way where you do not continue to replicate the injustices that brought us to where we are today. Like Carmela Sparrow, Diane Hanna says she is happy with the work Carmel Clay's diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator is doing. Essentially, what our DEI coordinator does um, is, is making sure that people feel heard, right? So students, parents, teachers, that everybody feels heard. And she's helping coordinate these efforts where uh, teachers can learn more about the different cultures that their students represent. And she is supporting school-based DEI initiatives where um, the teachers can get together and say, okay, well, maybe should we do, should we keep doing this assignment where students write letters to Santa? Do we really need to do that? Is that culturally exclusive? And what she has found in her DEI work is that Teachers really want to be able to serve their students better. They don't want to just keep doing the same assignments over and over because that's what, you know, their predecessor did um, when it's excluding, when it's exclusive to their students. So she's giving people support to do that. 
And she started a parent guardian advisory group. So these community connections so that we can give our feedback and she can inform us about what's going on at the district and we can have these conversations. This was the work that the protesters at the school board meetings were yelling about. One of the groups was something called Purple for Parents Indiana. At first they came out and they said, we don't need a DEI chief. We don't need to handle DEI issues. We don't have any racism here. And it was, you know, a couple of white women saying that. And to my question, my question was, well, did you ask any person of color about that and their experience? Um, That message quickly got deflated because I think they realize that that's not the kind of community that we live in. Like, actually, this is a community that wants to be progressive and in the sense of we want to do what's right by all kids. Like, that is the type of community that on its face we want to be. So that message did not go well here. What did get traction, though, is the LGBTQ stuff. And so they would say a lot of things about the LGBTQ community. We have a lot of religious um, people here. And I'm religious too, but the way I go to church and all of that. But, you know, the way some people practice is just a little different. And a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming at the school board meeting. It was really out of hand. Then they they started talking about SEL, social emotional learning, which I knew because I am a teacher, but also SEL has been in the district for years. My kids, when when they were in kindergarten, about a couple years before that, I want to say uh, three years before that, they had SEL. You are hearing how the extremists ran through what at this point has become the standard playbook of extremists all over the country. They started with critical race theory, then went on to diversity, equity, inclusion, then they turned their sights to LGBTQ plus children, focusing on transgender children, and then they got to social-emotional learning. Social-emotional learning refers to the idea that schools have a responsibility to ensure the kind of environment where students feel welcomed, respected, and valued. In addition, the idea behind social-emotional learning is that schools are supposed to help children learn to cooperate and manage their emotions when they face the inevitable conflicts that arise when you have hundreds of children and adults in a building. To read more about it and the research behind it, you can see the one-page brief on it at www.assistdemocracy.org. By the way, social-emotional learning is required by Indiana law as part of what they call 21st century skills. Indiana state legislature has had a Republican supermajority for years, so it is difficult for the extremists in Indiana to claim social-emotional learning has been imposed on the schools by a left-wing conspiracy. That hasn't stopped them, though. You can see videos on the Purple for Parents Indiana website where they say that social-emotional learning exists to make children into victims, and they really struggle to characterize as evil simple practices like offering children a chill-out space when they feel particularly stressed. Carmela Sparrow again. The district put on an SEL event, like, hey, come and see what we do with the students. Come and, you know, get a hands-on experience with it. And I was like, oh, great. I'm sure this room will be filled with people who are intrigued to know what SEL is and how it's happening in the schools, etc. Nobody was there. Those four people, the guy I sat next to was the husband of the speaker. <laughs> so it was three people. <laughs> so 
at that moment, it solidified for me. I already had a notion of this, but at that moment, it solidified for me. This isn't about what's happening in the schools. This is about something else. This is about the school board. Carmela Sparrow was right. The protesters weren't just complaining. They were preparing a campaign for the school board. And here it's important to note that this was not just happening in Carmel Clay. It was happening all over the country as part of a coordinated effort by organization after organization with names like Moms for Liberty, Parents Defending Education, No Left Turn in Education, the 1776 PAC, and many more. Just to give you a sense, the Leadership Institute, which has been training what it calls conservative candidates to run for office since 1979, added training for school board candidates in 2021. And the following year, they hired one of the founders of Moms for Liberty to run that training. These organizations are all well-funded and pay very nice salaries. Most of them refuse to say where they get their money from, which is why they are characterized as dark money operations. I should note, in the spirit of accuracy, that the Leadership Institute is largely funded by Morton Blackwell, whose political activity goes back to 1964, when he was Barry Goldwater's youngest delegate at the Republican National Convention. I should also note that most of these organizations operate as educational nonprofits, which means they are exempt from federal taxes because they are supposedly nonpartisan. But there's little that is nonpartisan about many of them. They are working to elect extremists on Republican tickets. And by the way, one of their efforts is to push the idea that school board candidates should have to declare their party affiliation. This is in opposition to the long-held idea that school boards should be a place where community members put aside parties and come together in a nonpartisan way to serve the children of the community. Okay, so back to our story. Carmela Sparrow was explaining that none of the people who had been protesting against the social-emotional learning program in Carmel Clay schools came to a presentation about what was actually taught in that program. That's when she realized that something else was going on. And now is where I want to introduce Nikki McNally. She's key to this story. I'm Nikki McNally. I'm the founder and head of Support CCS PAC, which is a PAC that we created to support local school board candidates here in Carmel Clay Schools, uh, candidates who support the mission and values of the school district and and essentially support public schools um, here locally. Nikki McNally had been an activist since right after the school shooting in Sandy Hook as an early organizer for Moms Demand Action, a group formed to demand gun safety laws. I really grew up with that organization as it went from nothing to the big organization that it is today. And what that allowed me to do was learn um, so much about lobbying, about the legislative process, about organizing, about how to raise money, how to get people involved, how important it is to get people to show up. Um, so I just learned a lot about uh, not only the legislative process, but about how to organize volunteers and how to get your message out, how to work social media. I mean, every avenue, every every part of this that you can think of for an election, for a campaign, I learned in Moms Demand Action. I also built a big network of people here in Indiana through that organization. And these are people that are willing to 
be involved. They're willing to fight for a cause. Um, people that are very caring and um, especially about children, just very caring, um, kind people who are willing to work hard and um, get things done so that our kids have good, strong schools, have safe environments. It's just a great group of people. So Nikki McNally knew how to be an advocate, but running a political campaign was new to her. So one of the things that I found when starting to try to help the school board candidates with their actual campaigns for election um, was that there really didn't exist anything for nonpartisan campaigns. You could find all kinds of information on how to run a campaign as a Democrat, how to run a campaign as a Republican, but there was not a lot of information about how to run a nonpartisan campaign just for something basic like school board. I knew we needed money. I knew our candidates were going to need money, but I also knew these people were going to put up candidates, well-funded candidates, and we needed to do the same. And it wasn't going to be a typical school board election where you could just buy a couple of yard signs, talk to your friends and neighbors and hope, hope you get elected. So we spent all of spring, we developed a questionnaire, we interviewed candidates. I had a, uh, an advisory committee of five or six people that were somewhat diverse in thought that we interviewed candidates and, and uh, vetted and endorsed three candidates that we supported for the election. One of the best things we did as a PAC was keeping other people out of the election. We did not want to split the vote. So we had so many conversations with qualified and, and motivated candidates about supporting and just getting behind one candidate that support CCS was going to endorse. So we had three district seats up for election. And so we were very careful to only have one candidate that we could all get behind in each of those districts. So we rallied everyone behind Kristen, Jennifer, and Jake. And actually the other side didn't do this. They, they split their ticket and it really muddied things up, muddied the waters for them. It did not help them. So we ended up winning two out of three of those seats, which um, was not ideal, but it, but it still allowed us to have the majority of our school board supporting the school district's initiatives. Carmela Sparrow led the efforts to select the candidates supported by the PAC, and Nikki McNally led the efforts to support the campaigns. I essentially was like a campaign advisor for all three of these um, individuals. So they ran their own campaigns, but their own campaigns were small compared to what we were doing for them. So we raised $40,000, which in a school board election was unheard of. We had yard signs with their three names on it around our community. We texted people. We, um, we had probably 30 to 40 meet and greets. We had phone banks, we knocked on doors, we had canvassing, we had um, a whole online social media presence, we had online advertising. I mean, we did a lot with our $40,000. And our, and the one of the biggest things was our $40,000 was probably 99% individual donations. We raised money from this group of people that were just so upset 
at the attacks on our schools. We raised money by with our yard signs. So we asked if people wanted yard sign, would you, you know, would you pay 10, 15, 20 dollars for your yard sign? So we raised a lot of money that way. We wanted to place an ad in our local newspaper, but we told people we didn't have enough money to do that. If you wanted to pay for an ad, we raised like $3,500 in one day for an ad in our paper. Said, we need this. Can you help us? Now, again, we are very lucky because it's a wealthy community. Not everybody, but it's, I mean, people here have money to, to give. So, um, but also, I mean, we were very... We were just very out there. We were very targeted. We got their names anywhere and everywhere. Nobody in this town could drive around and not see these three names. Another thing we did was we noticed, especially after COVID, people didn't really want to do house parties. And actually, people don't really like house parties unless people like to host because, you know, you got to clean your house before, you got to clean after, people are trekking in and out of your home. Like, it's a whole thing. We did driveway parties. And that was a really good success. The people who were hosting it, they would get, you know, their friends and community members to come. And then also as people are driving by, you know, they're seeing all of that, they might stop by. And then that's where you would pass out signs, pass out t-shirts if we had them, pass out all of our flyers and mailers. And yeah, so that, that was also a really great idea. So it was kind of like a battle of the yard signs because the other group was doing the same thing. They had tons of money. They were, their yard signs were everywhere. I mean, they were everywhere too. So in the end, they started in the last month, they were just flat out uh, campaigning as Republicans with the Republican party. We maintained nonpartisanship the whole time. In fact, one of our candidates was a Republican, but they were just like, they were canvassing. The, our Hamilton County Republican party had paid canvassers for these people. I mean, we were up against hundreds of thousands of dollars. They had a plane with a banner fly over our high school football game with their names on it. It was crazy what we were up against, but we were so organized. We really were good with our messaging. We stayed very positive, but we were good at getting out the message that these people want to change everything. And we love our schools. They want to change everything. Our teachers are afraid. They want to fire our superintendent. Your class sizes are going to go up. We we got that info out through networks of teachers, through parents. So I think, I mean, and the votes were close, though. I think the older people and the just straight Republican voters who don't have kids in the schools voted for these people, the people that buy into that rhetoric. But enough people, you know, knew we love our schools. We, I'm going with who the teachers want. Now we couldn't ever, we couldn't ever get teachers really to come out and say, because they have to work with these people if they're, but we did get key endorsements from like a former superintendent endorsed our people. Those were fantastic. All three of our candidates worked really hard. So I don't want to minimize their efforts in running their own campaigns, but running them together as a slate with the, the support and the funding from the PAC was really key to their success because their names were recognized everywhere, all over town. And on election day, people really remembered that they were the candidates who our teachers and our schools supported and that they support public schools. The Support CCS website has dozens of endorsements of the three candidates supported by the PAC. Parents looking straight at the camera and saying the names over and over, Kristen Coquet, 
Jennifer Nelson Williams, Jake Nichols. Sometimes it was just the first names, Kristen, Jennifer, Jake. A former principal and former superintendent added even more weight when they endorsed the three. Meanwhile, in the rest of Hamilton County, there was a similar dynamic going on. The Hamilton County chapter of Moms for Liberty had endorsed a slate of three candidates for school board in Hamilton Southeastern, which includes the town of Fishers. All of the candidates supported by the Moms for Liberty had the same talking points as the candidates in Carmel Clay supported by Purple for Parents. The schools are failing, the teachers are indoctrinating students, parents don't have enough rights. So now I want to take us on a little detour from the story of Carmel to talk about Fishers, because it's a little bit of a cautionary tale. I'm Jamie Karens. I'm the founder of HS Equal. HS stands for Hamilton Southeastern, which includes the town of Fishers, where Jamie Cairns lives. Honestly, if you're confused by all the names of the jurisdictions, I don't blame you, but they're a result of combining what once were small rural districts outside of Indianapolis. I'll, I'll try to keep all the names straight. I got word that the school corporation, the school board, was reconsidering the non-discrimination policy, and... Um, at the time, we had two school board members, one who had been on our board for more than 20 years, who long no, was long away from having children in the district, and a second who had been, they both were pretty radicalized right-wingers. Um, and they, so what's interesting is the school board voted, I think in February of that year, to start recording school board meetings. Um, with video. And that ended up being a game changer because they had some board meetings about a non-discrimination policy. And these two school board members in particular said some just horrible things. Um, You can find all kinds of news coverage for it because thankfully it was on one video. So I went to a board meeting where they were talking about it. It was horrific because there were students there telling them why it needed to be inclusive, why it needed to cover gender identity, and why LGBTQ students need to be included. This is probably as good a time as any to say that the show notes has links to lots of news coverage of both Carmel Clay and Hamilton Southeastern, so you can see for yourself what she's talking about. But essentially, a school board member made what were seen as disparaging remarks about transgender children and questioned why they would need specific protection in school policies. The way our board does policies, I'm not sure if this is universal. They have to have at least two readings of the policy before they vote on it. So I went with a couple of my friends and I said to them, I think we need to like start a Facebook group, which was so random that I thought that um, within two days, we had 2000 people join this Facebook group and we had a student suggest the name. So the name was HS Equal at the board meeting where they ended up voting on the non-discrimination policy. There were by conservative estimates, four to 500 people there. With that show of support, the board did vote to include LGBTQ plus students in their non-discrimination policy. And the Facebook group now has 3,600 members. And unfortunately, like we've really got this thing in the community viewed as an us versus them situation. And it's not, that's not the case. Like we don't view our role as being us versus them. We're really pro- you know, equity, we stand up when things need to be stood up and spoke against, but we don't, like this other group in our community is really ugly. They have hired private investigators to out 
folks on Twitter who have, there've been some anonymous Twitter accounts somewhat hilariously because the Fisher's one folks at one point thought that it was me behind one of these anonymous Twitter accounts. And I was like, why would I make an anonymous Twitter account? My name's all over everything. I have HS equal on my resume. Like I'm not hiding. There's zero reason for me to hide. I don't need to hide. They, they have made threats against people. They did this in Carmel too. They tried to say our schools are failing. We have one of the best school districts in the state. People move here for the schools. The schools aren't failing. In both Carmel Clay and Hamilton Southeastern, extremists used the fact that proficiency rates on state tests had dropped. They didn't mention that the tests were new and proficiency rates all over the state dropped, which is a typical pattern after new tests are adopted. Both Carmel and Fishers had proficiency rates far above the average districts in Indiana. If there was a drop, it was very insignificant and it was a long time ago, but they manipulated the data and have convinced people that our schools are doing worse. The candidates supported by the extremist group Moms for Liberty ran on a slate called Fisher's One and exploited the lower proficiency rates. And despite all the interest in defeating them, as evidenced by the thousands of members of the Facebook group, they won. They now control a majority of the school board I asked Jamie Cairns what she thought made the difference, and she thought that it was that Fishers didn't create the kind of pack that Carmel Clay did. So they, they kind of were able to make a group that was new. And I've been saying that this is what our community, HSE needs this. HSE needs a second, like, a, I, I will support that group, but they need someone that isn't viewed as the super liberal entity to be doing the work in the community. And unfortunately, while I knew that, you know, well before the election, I could never, it can't be me. It has to be someone else. It has to be more organic and being led by people that don't have these specific, you know, identities attached to them already in the community. There's another aspect of the story and the story of many school board elections that has to be talked about. And that is the hollowing out of local newspapers. An average of two local newspapers a week have closed since 2005, and many of the remaining newspapers have drastically cut staff. This means that in many places, no one is left to cover school board meetings and school board races. This has frustrated Jamie Cairns. And the influx of money from outside is something that I am so frustrated by, and because we can't. I can't find good reporting on the outside money. The lack of local coverage in Fishers was something that struck Larry Lannon when he retired. My, my name is Larry Lannon. I'm, a, I'm a, an old reporter, became a federal civil servant, retired. Didn't see a lot of local news in my local community of Fishers and started writing a blog in 2012 then started a podcast in 2016. So I'm just somebody who's a work as a volunteer. I get paid a little bit now and then, but most of the time I'm a volunteer just trying to provide news to my community. A lot of out-of-state money came into this campaign. It's hard for me as an independent journalist to trust it all the way. I will say that these four candidates that won the most recent election are most certainly uh the ones with the most money. Larry Lennon is valiantly trying to fill the gap in local coverage, and he has built an audience in Fishers for his straightforward news coverage of town issues. 
But in trying to simply give his neighbors information, he ran up against something that we are seeing more and more of. All over the country, candidates supported by extremist organizations are not answering questions. They don't fill out questionnaires from the League of Women Voters or from Ballotpedia. They don't speak at candidate forums and they don't answer reporters' questions. And because many voters don't pay attention to school board races, that permits them to run under the radar. Since 2016, I've been doing these podcasts with local school board candidates. And uh, I've never had anyone turn me down until this last election cycle. The other thing I would say about the campaign, it wasn't just that the candidates didn't present themselves to questions from outside their own bubble. They basically had only one issue, and their issue was they wanted to increase the academic excellence in the community. And uh, it was a very vague kind of thing. And, and most of their campaigns were centered around that and some, some very general ideas. So they, they weren't very specific and did not uh, answer a lot of specific questions. So they weren't very specific. They didn't answer questions. And in a town that mostly votes Republican, they were known to be Republicans, even though it is an officially nonpartisan race. And they won. One of the first things they did was try to refuse a $5 million federal grant to provide mental health services to students. They were limited by law from doing that, but that gives an indication of their direction. Here's Larry Lennon again. So we've seen a, a change in approach by our school board as a result of that. Let me give you a couple of examples. There is a survey called the Panorama Survey. It's used by many school districts around the nation. It's a way of trying to gauge the atmosphere in a school district and the students take it. The school board was very critical when the new board came in about this. They felt it was too liberal, I would say. And uh, even though there were two years left on the contract and uh, the school district had prepaid the fee, the uh, survey was done away with, even though it was going to cost the school system tens of thousands of dollars. That was a surprise. And that survey fulfilled a requirement by the State Department of Education in Indiana to somehow gauge the atmosphere of the school. Now the school district has to come up with another way of doing it. The only other issue that has come up And keep in mind that the board's only been in office for about six months. Uh, They did change the student handbook to take away a reference to microaggressions. I I did a podcast with a group of uh, black leaders in in one of the high schools and uh, talked about the challenges of being in a largely white suburban high school. And they mentioned to me many times that they felt that they were the target of microaggressions and that this language in the student handbook was helpful to them to try to explain to people what you did was not the right thing and that it helped tone down some some situations. But the school board 
made the decision to take that language out of uh, of the student handbook, and there was quite a there was discussion about that. But the final decision was to take that language out. So we've taken a rather long detour from talking about Carmel Clay. But the point is that in nearby Hamilton Southeastern, which in many ways is a very similar community, extremist organizations were able to run under the radar and elect candidates they supported. So now let's return to Nikki McNally. So I think actually what's going to help us is what's going on in Hamilton Southeastern. So if these board members continue to act the way that they are, people are like, people that voted for them are like, oh God, what did I do? There's a lot of that chatter right now. Like I wanted change, but like, oops, these people don't have a clue what they're doing. They don't know anything about schools. And I think if they fire their superintendent, and stuff like that, or teachers start quitting and things like that. And we have that to point to. I, th- I think that will really help us. Unfor- it's unfortunate. It's a terrible situation that they're in. The reason Nikki McNally is already thinking about the next election is because the 2022 election was so close. Kristen Coquet won with 39.5% of the vote, only 117 votes more than her nearest opponent. Jennifer Nelson Williams, in comparison, won a landslide with 46.2% of the votes, a whopping 881 votes more than her nearest competitor. And Jake Nichols lost his race by 114 votes. The guy that won, he knows nothing about our schools. It's so frustrating. His kids graduated years ago. I'm hoping he's going to actually learn that all these things he was afraid of aren't really happening. I'm hoping. Even before the next school board election in 2024 is a referendum on the school budget, which has to be passed every seven years. Nikki McNally is worried that unless there is a lot of organizing done between now and then, the referendum could fail, in part because of the propaganda. Carmel Clay doesn't have a retired reporter like Larry Lennon in Fishers, but it does have someone who is trying to systematically counter the misinformation about schools. Jim May, and really, I'm just a parent. I mean, I, I professionally, I'm a marketer. I, I've been in marketing for about 20 years now, um, almost exclusively focused in like the advanced manufacturing technology sector. But in terms of the school board election last year and what's been going on with the schools, I didn't have any special expertise. Um, it, it wasn't an issue I was especially knowledgeable on. What happened last fall when the candidates were first announced, I started just doing some basic research on who are we going to vote for for school board, looking into who was on the ballot. And there was a slate of candidates that were really, I guess, from my perspective, kind of denigrating the schools, denigrating the teachers, um, making a bunch of claims about the state of our academics, what what the school system was focused on. Um, I started just looking into that, thinking, well, I haven't heard any of this. I have two kids that are in the school system that are pretty young. And as I dug into it, it became clear pretty quickly that this is just propaganda. This doesn't have a basis in reality. This is um, them twisting facts um, or 
in some instances, just making up facts to suit a narrative. Jim May started digging into data and countering the lies with a website he called Carmel School's Dad, which got thousands of views. He had no real connection with Support CCS at first, but since the election, he has become part of a larger effort. We had started talking after the election about how do we start preparing now because this isn't going away. This is going to happen again in 2024. And if we're not proactive about it, um, we're going to be in another position where it's too close for comfort and we don't want to lose control of the school board. So different people are kind of doing different things. One of the things I had an idea for was just an ongoing website that kind of keeps track of what's going on with the schools, what, you know, if there are attacks on either our schools specifically or statewide or even nationally, let's push back on those at a local community level and try to get good information out there. Um, Because I think what a lot of this comes down to is there are so many people who don't have kids in the school system that if they hear this propaganda, it sounds alarming and it sounds like something they need to be concerned about and let influence their vote. And I think a lot of that goes away if they hear from parents and have engagement with parents. Because, again, there's a small number of parents that that are on board for these attacks and are helping push them. The vast majority, when you talk to parents, it's like, no, this isn't, none of this is going on in our schools. This is ridiculous. Jim May and Support CCS are trying to get out accurate information about what is going on in Carmel Clay schools. The idea is that if the community knows more about the schools, they will be better able to resist lies told about them. Jim May says he understands the appeal of those lies because he grew up in a very conservative evangelical community. Some of his family members were very prone to believe conspiracy theories. There's a desire by some people to frame this very much as a Republican versus Democrat issue. In my limited experience so far, when it comes to parents' viewpoints, yes, the the people that are driving this attack on the schools tend to always fall on the Republican side. But the people that are pushing back seem to span the spectrum of me. I mean, I've met a lot of Republicans that are just kind of disgusted by this and saying, you know, this isn't the party that I want to be a part of. Why are they doing this? We have to push back and get these extremists out. So I don't think it's the issue itself isn't necessarily Republican versus Democrat. It's more this extremist group versus kind of everybody else on the parent side. He and Larry Lennon are great examples of what ordinary people can do to counter the dearth of good information in the wake of the widespread destruction of local newspapers. So let's recap a little. Carmel Clay School District, a suburban district just outside of Indianapolis, is mostly white, but with a small and growing population of families of color, many of whom were attracted by the high quality of the schools. Many of the older residents no longer have an intimate connection with the schools that they might once have had when their kids went to school. That leaves them vulnerable to alarmist stories that have been promulgated throughout the country by right-wing extremist groups. In nearby Hamilton Southeastern School District, extremist organizations were able to use that same dynamic to win a majority. But in Carmel Clay, the community was able to defeat two out of the three candidates supported by extremist groups and are working to build community support for the schools for the next election. 
We've heard a lot about the work that support CCS did to create a slate of candidates, discourage people not on the slate from running and splitting the vote, and build a volunteer operation of door knocking, putting up lawn signs, and working the polls. There's an important aspect I've kind of glossed over, but Nikki McNally mentioned how important it was, and that is how Support CCS crafted its message to voters. Let's go back to Carmela Sparrow, who helped lead that effort. You just have to understand the context in which you are working. Yes, you may care about this, but what do the people in your community care about? I mean, obviously, while still being authentic to yourself, but the ultimate goal is not, you know, um, an issue. The ultimate goal is winning the election, which is not the same. It's They're different. They're a bit different. We knew we would not win the election if we were like, DI, LGBTQ. Yes, we believe in all those things, but you're not going to win the election. Carmel is more like Republican leaning, right leaning. And so you have to be able to get a bigger base and you're not going to get a big enough base if you do that here. Now, can you do that in Indianapolis? 100%. Most likely you can. But here, that's not going to work. And so you have to find out what is the messaging that is going to demonstrate not how we are different, but how we are similar and how we are all working towards the same goals. Because most of the people, Carmel is one of these unique places where a lot of people move here for the schools. So speak to that. Why did people move here? People moved here for excellent, rigorous academic learning for their kids. That's why they moved here. And you have to stick to that messaging. I was going to pull up our website so I could pull up our, we ended up having six like core values. These values, we took a long time crafting. We were very strategic with our words, how we used our words, which words we used, which words we didn't use. We brought in other people who are maybe more right-leaning, like, hey, how does this messaging come off? Like, we were very, very strategic with our words. And I actually brought that in from my activist work, because something I realized from my activist work is people will find the one word that you say that is off, and that is the word that they're going to pay attention to. And so we have to be very careful with the way we frame everything that we're doing. So let me see. So our six things were... Academic excellence, school safety, global preparedness, mental well-being, parent partnership, and supporting teachers. And the reason we chose these particular things was, one, to deflate the opposite side's arguments. One of their big arguments was, we want academic excellence as if the rest of us don't. (laughs) Like we all want academic excellence. That's literally why we moved here for our kids to have academic excellence. And so we chose some of the same words that they were using because we also want those things for our students. And so academic excellence was one of our choices. Now, when we think about DEI, that's embedded in here. When we think we change that to global preparedness, right? So when we think about you, ha- your kids have to be ready for the marketplace. They have to be able to work in organizations. They have to be able to travel the world. In order to be prepared for those things, some of these DEI concepts are there. You cannot say DEI because that is a trigger word, but you can say global preparedness. And people are like, yeah. People should be prepared to travel the world and work for businesses. Why wouldn't they be prepared for that? That they can. 
Yes, that they can connect to. If you say DEI, which has similar grounding, people lose their minds. But if you say global preparedness, they're like, yeah, I'm with you on that. The next one was mental well-being. We had to say that instead of SEL. SEL is embedded in that for us. So see how we still kept our core beliefs, but we reframed it in a way that people would be like, yeah, of course we want our kids to have a mental well-being and to be, you know, feel you know, mentally supported at school. Of course we want that. Who's going to say that they don't want that? So you have to be strategic in your words. And even school safety, we, we put DEI in that too, because we put like that mental safety that is a key part of safety. It's not just, am I physically safe? Am I mentally safe? Am I, you know, is my, am I psychologically safe? Like all of those things matter too. And then parent partnership was a big one for the opposing side. But we also agreed that parent partnership was critical for us as well. Even with our activist work, a lot of the activist work that we did was because of partnership and parent partnership and all of that. And so that was also very important to us. And so we we put that as a big thing. And supporting teachers, you know, this was around, you know, 2020, 2021, where teachers were just, you know, all of those, um, even those, uh, I don't know if you know, but in Indiana, there was a bill that was being passed, Bill 1134 was trying to be passed. It didn't get passed, but I think they're trying to do it in another way um, where teachers had to like submit all their lesson plans by Jan- Ju- June for parent review and just like all these things. It's, it's like, okay, on top of getting us through COVID, on top of keeping our kids safe, now they need to put in all their lesson plans by June, like, how is this making sense? And so supporting teachers was a big one that we also put in there to just demonstrate like, hey, we love our teachers. We want to support our teachers. Our teachers are on the the front lines every single day. And we happen to have a lot of teachers who work in Carmel, who live in Carmel. So we knew we needed to get a good teacher backing as well. Here's Diane Hanna again. The reason we were so careful about the messaging was so that people could talk about it without being party political. So, of course, so we had these six pillars that anybody, almost anybody could get behind. And so what Nikki and Carmela essentially asked of the Carmel community was to get out of their comfort zones and to start talking about politics with their neighbors. But your neighbors might not be the same party, have the same party affiliation as you. So how do you start those topics? Or maybe you don't even know what they think about politics. I mean, one of the things that happened in this election was that people discovered <laughs> their neighbors' politics for the first time in um, you know, in the time that they'd known them because they um they had yard signs and how do you get people to take that initial step out of their comfort zone and the broad and clear and broadly appealing platform that support ccs had made it a lot easier for people to take that initial step and to share that they were supporting these candidates to support the schools in these specific ways It was very broad-based. Support CCS's message drew on the long history of support for public education, and they got their message out in a variety of ways, some of which you've heard about, some of which you haven't. Their website, their neighbor-to-neighbor conversations, ads, flyers, all kinds of ways. 
in addition, Jim May had his separate website trying to directly counter the propaganda told on the other side. Diane Hanna, the religion professor we heard from at the beginning of this episode, made extended arguments on social media trying to explain how the propaganda was built on lies and misinformation. I think a lot of the school board race and all of the issues there were getting lost in the weeds, and I really just wanted to pull out some threads to help people focus on the history, why we need a DEI in the first place, and um, why, you know, what the sort of decoding, what the narratives had been and why, you know, if you hear somebody talking about test scores, you want to look a little bit more closely and, you know, see if they're speaking in this coded language. So I went to Twitter and the reason I chose Twitter was because you could make threads. And so I could really control the, my narrative and you can add visuals, you can make things short and punchy, you're never telling the whole story, it's not this huge block of text, it's always broken up, and most importantly, everybody can access it. It is publicly available, and even if people who are not on Twitter, it is a resource for them. Or it was at the time, I don't know what Twitter is going to be like (laughs) in the future, but the important thing I think was that I chose a platform that was easily consumable and um, public-facing. So that again, anybody could access it. And I spent an absurd amount of time breaking everything down into Twitter-sized chunks and confirming with everybody who had been involved that everything was accurate because I did not want any distractions. It all had to be 100% fact-based. I did the historical research to, um, you know, basically make the argument that the story of white flight to Carmel hadn't been explicitly told to, to, to my knowledge or in anything that was very accessible. So um, you had to look at things like this court case where, you know, Carmel fought tooth and nail to not have to not be part of the busing uh, program from Indianapolis. And what was behind that? That was white flight and racism, right? <laughs> I started this podcast with Diane Hanna talking about her struggle about whether to move to Carmel. I want you to hear a little of her experience since then. Right. So, yeah, so my son came home from school um, one day. He was a kindergartner saying he didn't want to be Jewish anymore because all Jews are liars. And so that was kind of heartbreaking. And we talked about it and he wouldn't tell me who said it. And he was, you know, and so what we did was um, we signed him up for Hebrew school. the next week because I wanted him to be around more Jewish people. So so I called the teacher. I, I, I emailed the teacher and I said, have you heard anything about this? I assume this is not a part of the curriculum. And she was like, no, no, I don't know. We haven't talked about it. I don't know where he would have heard anything like this. And it was October. So I was like, okay, okay. So I'm assuming that it must have just been something, you know, that happened at recess or after school that one of his classmates said to him. Um, but can you just let me know what how you were dealing with the holidays. It was October and we have a whole bunch of winter holidays. And she gave me, uh, she described what they would be doing and how they would be talking about all the different holidays that people celebrated and, you know, not giving any one of them credence, you know, or precedence and um, that they would be focused on cultural traditions as opposed to, you know, religious statements um, or, or statements of belief and or, or doctrines. 
and uh, it all looked above board and totally kindergarten appropriate. And so, you know, I talked to the teacher. So I, my, my student had an incident. I talked to the teacher and I, you know, that, that's the, and, and I felt comfortable with what she would be doing. And she said she would look out for, she would keep an ear out for similar things being said. And that's how it's supposed to work. Right. That's how the schools are supposed to work. And my te- my students, my son's teacher was supposed to be empowered to be able to do that. In the face of a community where you have parents who say things around their kids that the kids repeat to students who may be the beneficiaries of what the parents have said. Right. Like parents speak hateful things. Or they believe things that are incorrect, or they make these sweeping statements, and their kids bring them into school, and teachers need to be able to deal with that, and our community needs to be able to address that. But when I say that Carmel wants to be better, and that there is this drive to inclusivity and anti-racism, we still have a lot of baggage. But yeah, Carmel's not perfect by a long shot. And we have a lot of racism and anti-Semitism and xenophobia in our community. And our schools need to be able to address that. Our teachers need to be able to address that. And parents should feel confident that the schools are creating welcoming spaces for all students. And so that when something hateful gets said, it is noted to be hateful. This is not to say that we want to blame a kindergartner for repeating what his parents said. You know, we don't want to um, shame them for having said that. But you need to be very clear. We don't make sweeping statements about that. You know, like you have to be able to address that. Preserving the ability of the school system to address incidents of racism and anti-Semitism is part of what drives the effort behind support CCS. But everyone knows that one victory is not enough. This is a long-term struggle. Here's Carmela Sparrow with the last word. We want to make the organization better, grow the organization, and be ready for the next election. Like We have to start ready. We have to start now for the next election. So we're starting now. So that's the story of Carmel Clay. It's not an unalloyed good story. All the candidates supported by extremist organizations were not defeated, but the community came together and kept them from taking a majority on the school board and fended off the horror stories we're hearing from around the country of school boards banning books, firing superintendents, disparaging and undermining teachers, and generally sowing distrust of local schools. You heard here that fending off such extremism which is often supported by outside PACs that don't disclose their funding, takes a lot of work and a lot of organizing. But if we are to preserve the legacy of public education, which has as its mission educating all children, it will take all of us. We can no longer afford to think that school board elections are sleepy little affairs where PTA moms and local business people vie for who can best serve the public. If we permit extremism to dismantle public education, we will lose the possibility of even trying to educate all children. You might think I'm being hyperbolic. I wish I were. The stated aim of many, many extremist organizations is to end public education. 
For more information, check out the one-page briefs on the website www.assistdemocracy.org and look at the one called Extremist Threat to Public Education. There we document some of the very well-funded organizations that are dedicated to this task. One of their many tactics is to attack schools, making it seem as if they are irredeemably flawed. Another is to sow distrust about today's students and teachers. Yet another tactic is to actively restrict books children can read and the history teachers can teach. We see these tactics at work all over the country, but also all over the country, people are standing up for public schools and for democracy, for teaching accurate history, for supporting teachers and librarians, and for having full library shelves. Because the fact is that most Americans want public schools. They don't want them dismantled. And they want them to teach students to think for themselves. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, check out our other episodes, Standing Up to the Extremists in Caneo Valley, and watch for more episodes in the future. And let us know what you think. You can reach me at chenowethkaren at outlook.com. That's C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H. K-A-R-I-N at Outlook.com. And if you're a school board candidate or part of a community supporting a school board candidate, please connect with us. Go to www.assistdemocracy.org and fill out the contact form. That's A-S-S-I-S-T-D-E-M-O-C-R-A-C-Y.org. Assist democracy.org. And then watch for an email from me, Karen Chenoweth. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.